But the problem is I didn't realize that there was a world like Howard, you know. So when I got to Howard University and there's all these different beautiful shades of black and, you know, just Afrocentric culture, like I didn't even realize I was beautiful until I got to Howard, you know. And I had never been in a place where there were so many black people with dreams and aspirations and you had teachers who, who loved you and wanted to see you succeed and wouldn't wouldn't let you settle for less. You know? Right. Um, you know, I wasn't really ever in a position where my grades were slipping, but I know that there were people who were and we would just pick them up like, hey, come study with us. Come This is episode three of the HBCU audio experience brought to you by HBCU grad. On this episode, I talked to an award-winning artist about his thoughts on passion and purpose, the Grammys, civil rights, to how a Craigslist ad led him to a deal, a major deal, adversity, Bob Marley, Steve Wonder. We, we talked about a lot of different things. I think you're going to get a lot of value out of this. There are a lot of nuggets, a lot of different factoids that were dropped in here. I think you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode. Hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone. It's Todd Finley from HBCU Grad. This is our third episode of the podcast. I have Aaron Abernathy on here with me. And this podcast has turned into one of my favorite formats because it gives us the opportunity to really go in depth and really hear people's stories. It's much longer form than how we started on social media. And um, I'm super excited about this conversation because um, me and Aaron went to high school together. We grew up in the same city, same suburb of Shaker Heights, Ohio. And we bumped into each other two, two weeks ago, maybe last week. And I was leaving the gym and he was coming in and we were both back in our hometowns and we both don't live there. So two minutes before, two minutes later, uh, we wouldn't have bumped into each other, started to have conversations. Um, we, well, we had a conversation while we saw each other. And the first thing that popped into my mind was, wow, this is someone that I've admired from afar, somebody that I knew when I was young, but I hadn't had a chance to reconnect with as we've grown into our professional selves. So I'm super excited about this episode. Aaron, for every for all our listeners, give them a rundown of where you're from, who you are. And they, I've already told you, I've already told them where you're from. But give them a rundown of uh, where you started from, how you got to where you are, what you're doing now, and everything like that. How you doing, uh, HBCU grad? My name is Aaron Abernathy. I am a musician, composer, singer, songwriter, uh, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. I went to school with Todd and uh, Shaker. And I got started actually in Cleveland at the age of eight when my mom brought my aunt's piano to our crib. She was going to give the piano away. And my mom was like, no, don't get that away. Like, we'll take the piano. I got younger kids. I want them to learn how to play the piano. And I gravitated to playing the piano. I started playing it by ear. Uh, my brother and my sister, they would play around with it. But my mom could see that I took a liking to it. She gave all of us piano lessons, but I was able to kind of thrive in the lessons. And she could see that, like, there's something here. 
And so that started me on the journey of playing piano, still playing by ear, still, you know, taking lessons and really learning the um, fundamentals of piano, classical piano at the time. But uh, it set me out on this path to be a musician. And so my nine to five, my really, it's like nine to nine or 24 hour thing that I do is music. I'm a world traveling artist that goes by my government name, Aaron Abernathy. That's awesome. Now, tell them what school you went to, what college you went to. Oh, the HBCU college that I went to was Howard University. Okay. Yes. Now, I studied what, music there, you know. That's awesome. So. That's awesome. What made you pick Howard? Because you came and we spent the day together when you came down to Florida A&M where, your, where me and your brother went. Yeah. And was that? Was that before you went to Howard or during your Howard days? That was, I believe that was before. I think was, it was. Too. That was before. Yeah, it was before. I came down to Florida A&M on my spring break. Um, either my, no, not my junior year. It was my senior year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting. Nah, it might have been before that. I'm not sure. I know I came down there. By myself, I remember you know what I'm saying me and you hung out for a day. Um, I I do know that my choices were between Florida A and M and Howard University. Those were the only two schools I applied to. Um, but I chose Howard, to, in in all honesty, because my brother went to Florida A and M, and I kind of wanted to create my own legacy. You know, like I felt that like in high school I was kind of in his shadow, so I was like, let me go somewhere where I can kind of do my own thing. And I also felt that I'm kind of, I'm I'm more of a city person. So going mm-hmm. to Washington DC seemed more appealing to me. That makes a lot of sense. And we have kind of similar stories because I don't know if you know, my sister went to Hampton. I did not and, know that. Okay. Yeah. And my sister, she is she's eight years older than me. So I would go down there and visit there. And Hampton was great, but I wanted to be kind of further south. I wanted to be where it was extremely hot. Yeah, I hear you. Coming from Cleveland. Right, exactly. That's what made me pick FAM. And, you know, it had a good business school. So what made you, was the was the, the music program something that attracted you to Howard? Yeah, well, to be honest with you, I started, I was going to Howard when I applied. I applied to go to their business school, you know. Mm. And so I started out like, okay, let me major in business, you know. Because, you know, they tell you, I remember when we was coming out of school, they was like, make sure you get a major or something, you can make some some money. You know what I'm saying? And so I applied, I got into their business school, and I actually changed my major the first day to mm. music, you know. And I changed my major because I just felt that music was my passion. But the mm. deal that I cut with my mom was that I would minor in business. So I, since I already got into the business school, they was cool with me minoring in business. So, and Howard had a music business, uh, jazz piano program. So I actually got the best of both worlds. Wow. Now, what is, what is your advice for people that are majoring in something that people tell them, Hey, this is going to make them money, but they have passions elsewhere. How do you balance your passion with realistic, uh, the realistic ability to take care of yourself after you graduate? I would say um, passion and purpose, it, it depends on, on the level of passion and purpose. Like 
some people have like a purpose and a passion around just taking care of people. You know what I'm saying? Um, but they don't want to go into like that that type of field. You know, they might want to be a business woman or businessman. But if they major in business and they understand the inner workings of the business, they can combine that with their passion. Like I always feel that any passion needs to have business behind it. So if you I'm a musician, but I always say like I'm a businessman that happens to do music, you know, like music is my passion, but I understand the business behind it. So I would say to anyone, especially in this day and age where we are, there's like an onslaught of entrepreneurs, you know, like I feel like there's nothing wrong with having a passion for something. Just make sure that you you can sustain yourself by knowing the business in which you have a passion in. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I partners that help you within the business of your music so you can have the ability to stay creative and be creative? Yes and no. I, I I always bounce things off of people. Like I feel like I'm always trying to find a way to just improve in the business side of my operation. So like I'm always, I have a team, a small team of like two or three people that I bounce ideas off of. Uh, and they, they help me when they can, but I don't have a, a team, like an in-house team that I'm like sending stuff to like, Hey, do this or do this or do that. You know what I mean? For the most part, like I kind of run my operation. I hope that it, it won't always be like this, but I also like it that it's this way because I know how to do all parts of my job. I know when it's time to be creative, when it's time to create an album, get in the studio, work on it, bring other musicians in. To me, collaborating in music, like I play keys, I sing, I compose, but I could play drums, I could play bass, but I'm not a bass player or a drummer. So I'm collaborating with drummers and bass players and giving them direction. I feel like I could do the same thing on the business side where I'm like, hey, I have a PR person, a publicist, and I could tell her, this is what I'm aiming to do. She's partnering with me, just like my drummer partners with me. I'm giving them direction. I'm telling them what I want to do. And now I just need their expertise to carry out and execute what I'm trying to do. You know what I mean? Nice. Now, tell me about a little bit about your creative process and how you go about creating music. Oh, man, it's there's so many different ways. Uh, Being a composer and a songwriter, I would say sometimes the song comes to me um, and I'm just singing it. I don't have any music. I haven't put any music to it but I would just sing it into my voice notes in my phone kind of make a a note of it so that I could come back to it figure out if I could put some chords around it Um, sometimes the music comes first I could just be practicing I come up with a nice chord progression that I like or a melody that I like and I'll record that and then put words to it Um, it just depends on what you're trying to carry out like if I'm trying to um, when I'm trying to make an album that's the best way I could put it I kind of let the songs come to me. I kind of let the narrative come to me. Um, And the best way that that happens is just me living my life and just experiencing life and like letting enough things happen to me so that I can write about them, you know? Nice, nice. So you pretty much get your inspiration from just just living and you try to be authentic and real to that. Yeah, I think it's important. I think that um, when when I'm just going out here, I'm living it, it allows me to be human and it gives me the human touch to be able to tell our stories 
which is very important to me when it comes to music. Um, because if you can relate to it, it'll get you through it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel that sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm never in a rush to create an album. I, I do know that luckily enough, I put my last three albums out pretty much in three and a half years, which is really great. But I've just been living, like I've been traveling, I've been doing so much, and I'm, I'm always writing, and I'm always thinking of the next thing. So it's right. been helpful to just not let experience, experiences happen to me, and I don't, you know, write about them. Okay, okay. When did you put out your first album? Ooh, okay, so my first album came out in 2005, and it was under the name Ab when I came out of school and it's interesting. It is my first album, but I don't really consider it to be my first album. I consider it like practice because mm -hmm. I was kind of pushed into it as in where I was performing around the city, but I had a demo that I was selling that I was literally like writing my name on with a permanent marker. And one of the uh, promoters was like, listen, you're doing a great job, but if you want people to look at you as a professional, you got to have professional product. And your right. name with a mark on it isn't professional. So he told me that in the spring of 2005. And I turned around and was like, all right, let me get this album done. And we had an album by November professionally wow. done. Like we cut it. I've always cut my music in my own studio and we cut it in the studio. And I was just figuring it out as I go, you know. And right. I put that out in 2005. But I really feel that my first release release, uh, my solo release, came in 2016 when I put monologue out and I have been working on music for years but there's this quote by Quincy Jones where it says it takes 10 years or I believe it's 10,000 hours to become an expert at something and I think it took me 10 years to really figure out my sound and how I want to do music and it showed when I put out my album monologue in 2016 right, right. you know now, for any upcoming artist that wants to create and wants to create a professional product and put their stuff out, what would you say is the cost to do something, the time that it takes? Um, what are they looking at in terms of things that they're going to need to be able to put a project together? Because I know there are a lot of different apps now that where you can record on your phone or record on your computer, and it's not as costly as it used to be. Yeah. If a feeling about a ballpark about how much it's going to cost to put an entire album together from the recording of it to maybe touring, maybe the marketing. Just give us a feel for that. Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. You know, uh, for myself, I record in house. So mm -hmm. I have over the years acquired equipment. You know what I mean? Like I bought equipment. I've acquired equipment from people like I've gone to pawn shops and like just found different things. I got, you know, I got me a Mac computer and I, um, I bought mics, I bought instruments, I bought so many things or purchased so many things that I've set up my own studio. So I'm not paying for studio time, but if you're paying for studio time, that's a totally different thing. And it depends on, where you're paying for studio time it depends on how efficient you are with recording so you know there's some people who could go in the studio and, and get a block get a day block for like 500 600 dollars 
that's Midwest prices. You know what I'm saying? On the East Coast, it could be something totally different. West Coast as well. But you could, you could get a block of time, but if you don't use your time effectively, who knows how long it'll take you to pay to record for an album. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I can't really speak to that, but I will say that, you know, when it comes to after you finish an album, post-production, mixing, mastering the album, uh, you got to figure out if you're going to put it out digitally. Um, if you're going to have physical copies, I do physical copies. I do CDs and vinyl, you know, and that can get expensive. Um, it just, it depends on what your goal is, you know, and that, that is the biggest thing. Like, I feel like you have to count the cost when you go on to any type of art, because it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. Uh, and your investment is going to be expensive, you know, and it's going right. to take work, you know, for you to get return on investment, you know? Nice. Right. That makes a lot of sense. What's your, what's your feel on the music industry as a whole right now? Do you like where it's at? Do you like where it's heading? Do you wish it was like the old school? Give us a feel for your thoughts on the music industry as a whole right now. Oh man. I think the music industry as a whole is actually the same. I know people want to say that it's different, but it's always been this way. They, they always find a way for them to make money. It's a business, you know? And I think that if you, that's entertainment period. Like if you want to get in the entertainment business, you have to understand that it's a business of entertainment. And so, you know, when you hear the same artist on the radio or even when a new artist breaks into radio, it is because there's a machine that has been set up that they are funneling artists through. And there are certain rules that these artists have to follow in order to be funneled through them. And when they break the rules, you'll see backlash from labels, you know, or they'll work so hard that they've been they've been doing the rules for so many years and now they can kind of do their own thing. They'll break free. Prime example is Drake. At the Grammys, Drake got on the mic and they cut him off because he was kind of breaking down the Grammy system. And the Grammy system is you pay to be in the Grammys. I pay to be a part of the Grammy um, committee. And when you pay to be a part of the Grammy committee, you pay $100 a year uh, to be a part of the Grammy family. And if you are a paying member, you vote on who gets a Grammy. Wow. You get what I'm saying? But that's not public knowledge. You know, right. what's well, public knowledge, but people don't look it up. You know what I'm saying? And the Grammys are aware that people assume that we are giving you the best. You know what I mean? We're giving you the best artist of the year. The, the person who wins artist of the year, or album of the year, it's voted in a small community of Grammy members. Hey, this is Todd. In a moment, we'll have a word from our sponsors, but... Stick with us after this break. Aaron starts to drop some real jewels. I can vote for it. Todd, you're not a member of the Grammy uh, member organization. You're not, so you can't vote for it. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And this is how all industries work. From the Oscars to the Emmys. This, this is a club, you know. But the club shows every year what they're doing they don't let you know like hey you got to be a member but they're like hey look this is the best album this is grammy award winning such and such 
this album won so many Grammys. This person won so many Grammys, but you know, you got to be a member to vote. This ain't a population vote. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. And so the way that this game is shaped, to me, you have to know the game. So I think that the music industry is the sh- is is the same. You know, mm-hmm. it's always been this way. They're in the business of making music. Right. Does this person look a certain way? Are the, we're going to get a certain amount of producers that we know that we think are cool, and we're going to get them to work on these things with you? Everybody's in bed with each other, but yeah. if you be like, "Hey, I don't want to get in that bed," they're, they're going to be like, "Cool," but it's going to be hard for you. You're going to have right. to find your own way, you know. And I'm speaking from a place of someone who had a deal. I was signed with EMI in 2010. I had a subsidiary deal through the um, the VP of A and R's. Uh, what is he? He was the vice president of the soul department of A&R's, right? And he he made it seem like I was signing to EMI. You know what I'm saying? But I was signing the subsidiary deal to his company and he had a certain amount of time to get me a major deal. But the minute that I didn't want to sing the songs that he wanted me to sing, and he could see like, I'm not going to be able to to twist and turn this guy and control this guy the way that I want to. Mm-hmm. He just stopped. He stopped talking to me. You know, right. we in a deal. We we a month into a year deal, and he just stopped talking to me. They paid me my money, but when the deal was over, it was done because he knew I'm not gonna be able to change this guy's mind. Let me find somebody who I can change their mind. I could get their publishing. You know, what I'm saying like it's it's a shady game. So when you look at people who are on the radio. You have no idea what type of deal that they sign. And and they don't really have a lot of control over what they sing. There is a certain, or rap, there's a certain narrative that they, they're going to push, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's just how the game goes. Right. Because back in the day, it used to be where artists only performed, right? And then the recording industry started as people recording people's live performances, correct? Am mm-hmm. I correct? Well, yeah, back in the day, they the, the thing the thing has always been who has the money to do something or make make something in mass production, you know? I mean, you could look at it like before the Model T came out, everybody was on foot. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? And then the Model T came out and people were like, wait, they're making cars. Then they started making them in mass production. So the thought of walking was like, why don't you have a car? Right. You know what I'm saying? But everybody couldn't afford a car. And it's the same thing with music. It's like when we were growing up, getting a record deal was everything. You know what I'm saying? I got a record deal. But everybody was making demo tapes and hoping that they could get it to an exec. There's always been a wall. There's always been a barrier. So when you talk about like live music, people were making live music. And they would go out and they would see the talent, mostly black talent, and be like, hey, I have a recording studio. We want to give you a deal and we're going to create your music in mass production. We've got producers. We've got such and such. People used to go, you know, to Motown when Barry Gordy did it like, yo, we could just get in front of Barry Gordy and sing a song. They'll start putting the song, songs together for us. They got songwriters. They got musicians. Let's go, you know. Mm-hmm. And you'll look at someone like Marvin Gaye, who's one of my favorites. Marvin was singing the songs that, you know, they were making for him at Motown. But then 
he wanted to make his own songs when what's going on came out and Barry Gordy was like you can't sing this you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. so it's it's always been one of those things where as artists we're trying to break through and have our independence but what they're saying is we got a machine that creates mass product and if you want to be part of that machine you got to do what we tell you to do right and that's just it i think that's in every game mm-hmm. you know so, so it's it's just knowing the game and then deciding how you want to play it makes sense makes sense now i want to go back a little bit and you're related to reverend ralph david abernathy yes yes sir that I is never, my grandfather's brother i never knew that yes yes my grandfather's brother martin luther king's best friend in the civil rights movement best friend before the civil rights movement man they were they were partners you know wow. and um you know they i always talk about the um the um their bond and what they did and how a lot of people think like, you know, us, the Civil Rights Act being passed in 1964 was like inevitable and it wasn't. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was a chance that this would have never happened. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, there there was a huge chance that Jim Crow to this day could still exist, you know? And I think that's what people don't understand. Like, Lyndon B. Johnson did not want to sign that bill. Mm-hmm. But they put so much pressure on them, you know, to do it through the through the marching and, you know, the live camera crews being out and, you know, people getting killed. And, you know, it's like they brought it to your TV screen through strategic protest. You know? And that changed the whole game. But they were also putting pressure on Kennedy putting pressure on Johnson and Johnson was like, y'all got to hold up. And Martin Luther King was like, this can't wait. But it was a, it was a strategic like move to get this done. But there were many black people that was like, Hey, don't do this. You're going to get killed. They like, they bombed my uncle's house, you know? Right. You know, this, this wasn't, it wasn't a game, you know? So yes, that is to answer your question. Yes. That's my grandfather's brother. That's a heck of a legacy to come from. Did you ever feel any type of responsibility to uphold the Abernathy name? Yeah, I mean, I still do to this day. I think, you know, going back to that record deal, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I was able to walk away from it because, you know, when a name, like the name has my father's blood on it, you know what I'm saying? My grandfather's blood on it. Like I'm not going to taint a legacy by singing something that, you know, that I feel doesn't apply to who I am or where I'm going, you know? So I feel like everybody that's an Abernathy, like we have to uphold the name um, where we came from, you know what I'm saying? What we're, what we are. So that's important to me. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. You know? Now, now going back to the music, um, when did you first go on your first tour? I went on my first tour in 2006. I got picked up at Slum Slum Village out of Detroit, the Mm -hmm. hip-hop group. I got picked up as their music director. Wow. So the crazy thing is that um, 
my mom was managing me at the time and she found an ad on Craigslist that said hip hop band looking for a pianist slash singer to go on tour with them. And she was just like, I'm just going, going to send your website. You know, she sent it out and this band happened to be slum village. She didn't even know who they were. And I was like, are you kidding? You know? And so I, uh, I sent in a demo. They, they hit me up like, Hey, you know, we really like, you know, your music. Can you send us a demo? I sent them a demo. They flew me out that weekend. I uh, met up with T3 in Detroit. Um, we actually went in the studio that weekend, just, you know, recording some stuff. And then um, from there, it, the rest was history. Went on a five-week European tour with them, summer of 2006. That was my first tour, which wow. really, like, it really opened my eyes to, like, what touring really is. Like, I think people think, that it's glamorous. It's a job, you know. You right. you go from city to city. Sometimes you fly. Sometimes you in a, in a van or a car driving. You know, it's it is grueling. You know, you got sound. You pee. You know, travel. So, so it's it's a job, you know. Right. Right. Now. Um... I'm sure it's tiring for them, even though they're getting on a plane and they might have luxury and all of that. But, you know, to go from city to city, it's tiring. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy, I can imagine. Okay. Did I so, lose you? I'm here. Okay, got you. Okay. So, you did your first tour with 2006 and 2005 was your first album. From 2005, yeah. 2006 to 2016, when you say like your first real professional album came out, what were you doing within inside those 10 years? Just working on music. Um, I will put out like mixtapes. I was touring with Slum Village. I, I toured with them from 2006 as their acting music director from 2006 to 2010 maybe 2011. In 2008, I became uh, their protege, Black Milk, who is also from Detroit. He is a producer slash rapper. I became his music director in 2008. I'm still with him to this day. Um, so I, I work with him, been touring with him. And yeah, just writing music. Right. Recording, putting out work, and going out and playing it, you know? Right. I think that after my deal went south in 2010 I I had to like regroup actually I was sick for a minute so like I took like 18 months off from music period mm -hmm. and in 2013 when I came back that's when we really started working on creating music that we knew would be on my first album under my name Aaron Abernathy mm -hmm. and you know from there it was just every day just working on music putting out projects putting out singles putting out EPs and just really cultivating the craft. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Now, when amateurs want to work with you, what's your response? Um, I'm always down to work, you know, it, because I believe that we like, we live in a day and age where even someone you would consider an amateur, they might have a lot of potential and have something going on. I also know that some people don't make music to be like a professional musician. Right. They're just trying to express themselves. 
They be like, yo, I get a lot of people who tell me like, hey, I want to put something together, but I'm not trying to do it on the level that you're doing it on. And I respect that, right. you know? Right. Like, hey, I got a love for music. I want to sing. I just want to put something together and put it out to say that I did it. It's like, all right, cool. You know, mm-hmm. I do have my rates because time is everything, exactly. you know, and like, you know, there's a lot of music that I have to make and there's a lot of things that I have to do. But I respect when, you know, someone is trying to do something, even if it's not on a professional level. Right. So do you um, mentor anyone that's coming up in the game? Because I don't think there's enough of that. I don't think enough people that have done and have been around the block reach back to people that really have nothing to help, nothing to gain in it, but just helping someone else. Do you do any of that? Yeah, I have. I have like three proteges that I that I've worked with, especially in D.C., where I'm I'm always open and open to, you know, helping anybody, because when I was coming up, nobody was helping me. You know what I mean? When it came to music, you know, I was from Cleveland and being in D.C., like people like, you're not from D.C., so, you know, I'm not really, they wasn't really trying to, you know, help me out, which is fine. You know, I found my way. But when people step to me and they'd be like, hey, man, like, I'm thinking about doing this or doing that. Can you point me in the right direction? I'm always willing to point them in that direction. Definitely. What are the things that you see in young talent that can let you know that someone's going to be something? Is it is it the drive? Is it the just God given talent? Is it the hard work that they put in? Is it unique? What do you see uh, within people that make you say this person has the ability to be a star? I feel like there. I always pay attention to adversity. Mm. You know, mm. like I feel like adversity is the thing that I'm really looking for. Mm. Like when they hit their first bump, how they react to it. You know. I try to tame expectations because, you know, that's the thing. I have to tame my own expectations, you know, because I think that that's where disappointment and anger can set in and it can deter you. So I feel like it's good to have passion. It's good to have raw talent. But like, who are you in the face of disappointment? You know, to me, that's where stars are born, where it's like, hey, I know I got the talent and skill set. I know I'm a hard worker. But are you going to work hard when, you know, when everything hits the wall, when it hits the fan, like what you're going to do, you know? Yeah, chips on shoulders is, is, is my hot button. I look for someone that has a chip on their shoulder, someone that's yeah. over, someone that uh, just has some, a burning desire that other people don't have. And if they mix yep. it with the hard work and the talent, then. Yeah, you definitely need a desire. You know what I'm saying? You definitely need. And I also feel like it has to be purpose-based. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, what you, what do you want to talk about? What's the goal? Because if you can remember why you want to do it, then you'll be good. You're right. But if why you want to do it is just money and fame, then you you chasing the wrong thing, you know? What's your why? I felt that, you know, I, I always wanted to have my purpose and my passion spiritually connect with people, you know, on a level of like a Bob Marley and a Stevie wonder to me, they're like musical prophets. So my why has always been to be a musical prophet that tells the stories of his people that heals people through music. You know what I'm saying? That has a message that resonates with people that can send them on the correct path. Mm -hmm. And so like, if I stick with that, I'm good. It's not about fame. 
It's not about money. I just believe that, that those two things come as a byproduct of my passion. You know what I'm saying? My someday goal. If my someday goal is to be to, to be able to impact the world in a way that Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley did through music. Right. The byproduct of that is could be, you know, creating and making a good living. I don't even need the fame, but the, both of these people are famous. You know, I don't even think they, they set out to be famous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the point. Like, I'm not setting out to be famous. I'm just doing music. And, right. and because I've been doing it this way, it's actually paid off. Whether you know who I am or not, like, it, I can go. I just came back from Rome and sold out a show. The first show that I ever did. And I was just like, where are these people coming from? You know, like, I, I don't even know what's happening right now. But I'm grateful for it. And I think that, that that all has to do with what I want to do or my purpose and passion. Like, keeping that in mind. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Now, how do you promote those shows when you do go international? Um, you have... Um, you have your booker and your promoter, like you send out your electronic press kit. I always tell them to play certain videos, play certain songs. Uh, I give them photos and, you know, people, when they see, I, one thing I will say about um, outside of the States, they have a, a better appreciation for art, period. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think here we're spoiled because we're always giving art. We're always seeing things, you know, right. and we're always... We are into fame and flash and, you know, celebrity. Right. And they're, it's not that they're not into celebrity, but they're actually into art. So they pay attention to certain places. Like if there's a club that brings good music, people, they're fans of the club and they trust the club. So whatever this club is bringing, we're going to go out and we're going to see it, you know. So when I come to a club and they got my picture up and they got my name up, People will just Google the name mm-hmm. and then they'll listen to the music and be like, we like this. And then they'll start spreading it around town. Hey, get tickets for this show. This is going to be good. There's a guy coming from America. He does soul music, funk music. He's coming with a band. We should check it out. And then I pull up and they know the songs. Wow. You know, because they've been listening to them. They've been, you know, they've done the research. And I think that that there's a lot of love in that where I'm just like, wow, you know, I, this is totally different than where I'm from. Right. And I like it. It's cool. Yeah. You know? Now, where, what cities have you been to? And, w- and which cities are your favorite? International. Man, I, I've been to a lot of cities. Um, some of my favorites internationally. London is one of my favorites. Um, Why? Bangkok. Man, London is, it, it has a vibe. Um, I can't even explain it. I think going there, um, Man, I don't even know where to start. There's just so many things to do. I enjoy the nightlife. I enjoy the people. I especially enjoy the black people in London, man. There's so many different flavors, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we just had we bring so much to the table, you know? So you have a lot of, like, Africans in London, you know what I mean? A lot of Jamaicans in London. Like, it's just, it's so much love. You got the islands there. You got Africa there. Like, you just got so many beautiful black people, mm-hmm. you know? Um I went to Bangkok. Bangkok is an amazing place because of the honor in their culture. People taking their shoes off, people bowing to each other. I was in a mall in Bangkok and it was cool to see the monks come through. Wow. And like 
pay respect to they they people stop pay respect to the monks and the monks gave respect back you know right um it's just so much honor there uh japan is the same way i i actually won um soul album of the year in japan in 2016 with my first album monologue and i went out there and i did a show and you know they was playing my music on the radio i'm in a restaurant people know who i am it was crazy you know and they just have an honor system that that i i respect right um where else have i been spain i love spain i get a lot of love in spain madrid barcelona zaragoza um san sebastian um i just went to rome rome was a great time paris amsterdam lyon france um zurich stock i'm about to go play stockholm sweden's jazz festival in april um lisbon and porto and uh portugal beautiful places uh I've been places in the States, New Orleans, man. Like, I love New Orleans and the States. Okay. You know, Australia. Australia is a beautiful place. Canada, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary. Um, I've been a lot of places, man. I'm really blessed to say that. All right, we're here back with Aaron Abernathy. And um, going on tour internationally is something that a lot of people don't get a chance to do. Can you give us a feel for everything that goes into the whole touring process, what the promoters do, what you have to do as an artist, what type of prep you have to do, how much, how long do you have to practice? Just give us a feel for the whole touring and especially the international part. I'll say um, to most artists, and I know artists look at it like, how do you, how do you become an international touring artist? One of the things that I think is important is for artists to be transparent about their journey. So I'll Mm -hmm. say the reason that I've been able to tour internationally is because I've been a music director for internationally touring artists for what now 14 years. So no 13 years. So since spring of 2006, I was doing, I was Slum Village's music director. And then again, in 2008, fall of 2008, I became Black Milk's uh, music director. And even with Black Milk, he was working with Slum Village. He was producing for them and he went on tour with them or they, they were able to use the fact that he was Slum Village's producer to be able to put him out into the world. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So both me and him come out of Slum Village's camp and then I'm in his camp as well. And so because people have seen me in Europe with him, I've been able to cultivate and make certain relationships with promoters over the years and say, hey, I got a CD out. I've been able to slide him the CD, you know, mm-hmm. check this out. Let me know what you think. And they've gravitated and they've been able to say, hey, this is Aaron Abernathy out of Black Milk's camp. He's also worked with Slum Village. He's, I also did a, a, a tour, an international tour with a group called Foreign Exchange. And so I've been able to create and connect with and network with international promoters for most of my career. So it's opened up the door for me to be able to go to Europe and to Japan and to Australia and out of the country and do work. In addition, I create music that has an international feel to it. So... There's a certain type of music that people outside of the country want to hear. They don't really want to hear trap per se. You know what I'm saying? They want to hear like soulful 
organic music that is filled with instrumentation. Now, mm-hmm. granted, you some artists do go, you know, overseas and do certain shows, but you got to pay attention to who is traveling and who's out of the country and who's in the country. A lot of artists can stay, they just stay in the country. Like, I'm trying to think of who is super popular, but they haven't really... Um, I don't know if Rick Ross is super popular, but Rick Ross isn't really doing a European and Japanese tour. You get what I'm saying? Right. Because he makes music that is kind of, it doesn't, the best way to put it is, it doesn't have a worldly appeal. You right. Know? It doesn't have a worldly message. Even Jay-Z and Beyonce, they're, they're two of the biggest stars in the world. So, you know, they'll do a world tour because everybody knows who they are, you know? Right. Right. But, you know, you, I just think that when you're an artist, when you're an indie artist, you got to think about the type of music you're making. And to me, you can't look to your left or your right. You got to really zone in on like, what am I doing? You know, what is the message that I'm peddling? You know, what is the type of sound that I'm peddling? And then I think out of authenticity, it'll lead you to where you need to be. But I don't want to make it like there is a certain way or a certain way that you got to do things to be able to become an international artist. Like I've made a lot of sacrifices. I've flown myself out to places mm-hmm. just to make the connect. You know, yep. there, there have been times where these places didn't have a lot of money, you know, like, ah, I, I remember the first time I went to Spain, the dude told me, he was like, look, man, I ain't got a lot of money for you. You know, I got about 1200 euros per show, but you got to, you got to find your own way here. And I made it work. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, I became, I'm, I'm very resourceful. Like, I'll find a way to make it work. And I, I came back making money, you know, because for me, my power is I have merchandise to sell. So not only is he paying me for the show, but I got vinyls and CDs in my book bag to sell, you know? And if you, if you put on a, a fantastic show, people, they not leave it without picking it up, you know? So... My my thing is around international um, touring, it starts with just betting on yourself at home. Like, I played D.C. and Cleveland for years mm-hmm. before I, I ever did an international show. I was D, I, I worked in markets that, that knew me. D.C., Cleveland, New Orleans, um, Pittsburgh. I worked in places that would give me a chance. And I think a lot of times we pass up people that are willing to give us a chance. If there's a club that's like, okay, come and put a set together. Go through and put a set together. It's just practice for the big stage. You know? Exactly. So now I've gone from someone who was playing Pittsburgh, Cleveland in 2006 to someone who I'm about to do a residency this summer in Barcelona for five nights mm. at their premier jazz club. You know? Oh. But it, yeah. it, you know, this, this is taking time, though. And I think right. a lot of people don't realize that it takes time, you know. So people aren't, people aren't patient, and people aren't willing to put in the work, and aren't willing to work for free. Yeah, That's, I'm a big proponent of working for free, getting as close to whoever you want to be, or getting close to the person that can get you to where you want to be, and right. then just and then just being patient. Yeah, um, yeah, that's it. That's yeah, it. That's, you know. And keep, remember, that's why I go back to remember what you're doing it for, mm-hmm. you know, because if you really, if you can answer that question continuously, you go, you'll be all right. What are right. you doing this for? Why did you start this? You know, because there's going to be a lot of distractions that's going to come your way. 
That's going to try to get you off the path, but you got to remember why you're doing it. Exactly. Um, In 2017, I put out an album called Dialogue, um, which touched on being an African-American in this country. I really, I focus more on being an African-American male and being an African-American female, but I, I do believe that the females can relate, like black men and black women, we we relate to each other, you know, we relate to, we, we, although we have different struggles, I do believe we're on the same team, you know, and that album touched on just what it is to be black in this country with, you know, with our, our current president, you know, and what he was pushing. And then after that, I just put out an album February 1st called Epilogue, which is an album that touches on uh, restoration after heartbreak. Um, uh, I think it's a it's a really good album. It, it was like therapy for me after going through a heartbreak. So, okay, it's something that I believe everybody can relate to. Right, you know. Nice. What what artists do you like nowadays? They don't have to be soul or jazz or new or old. Just what artists do you really feel in when you're when, like? Who are your go to artists? I'm always listening to Marvin Gaye. Okay. Like he's like Marvin Gaye, Sly Stone, Curtis Mayfield. Um, to me, those are like three that I listen to due to the way that they write. You know what I'm saying? Their their pen is impeccable to me. Right. Um, Stevie Wonder, um, James Brown, Prince. Uh, yeah, like those are. I'm I'm kind of like old school with it. You know. Because okay. I, I feel like that music has like a certain vibe and feeling and authenticity to it. You know, I love 90s R&B. I love rap, you know what I'm saying? Like 90s rap. I don't, I don't really listen to it as much as I used to. I'm a, I'm a huge jazz head. Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis, Charles Mingus, um, Quincy Jones, um, Aretha Franklin. I know I'm back on some soul. Uh, Shaka Khan. Like, I could go on, man. The Barclays, Isaac Hayes. You know, it's I got a bunch of vinyl like at my crib and I'm just always just listening to something. Who put that in you? Was that played in your house when you were growing up or is that did you discover that as you grew up? Yeah, I I I got that from my dad, man. He has he just he's got just records, stacks of records, you know what I mean? And growing up there there was not a like a moment when music wasn't being played in my household. You know, the record player continuously was spinning, you know. Right. So, like, right. you know, from sun up to sundown, like, when he gets up, there's some music on, you know what I mean? When he's wow. cooking, when he's cleaning, you know, yeah. it's always music, it's always records. Like, that's just what he does. And so now, you know, I, it's me that does it. You know, mm-hmm. I remember growing up, it's records and incense, Mm-hmm. Now, that's me. Records and incense. You know what I mean? Candles burning. Just that's just who I am. You know, it inspires me. Right. Was anybody else in your family musically inclined? No, that's the crazy thing. Like there wasn't, you know, in my immediate family, there isn't no singers and musicians, even like, you know, my aunts, uncles, my first cousins, my grandparents. Nah, nobody was. Nobody was doing music, so I don't know where it came from. But I always say it's the record player, you know? Okay. I always say, like, my dad was a musician with the record player, you know? 
he had right. great taste in music, so I was kind of influenced by everything that he was putting on. Mm-hmm. You know. Did you ever take singing lessons? I, I never really took singing lessons. I did take a singing course when I was at Howard. Okay. But I never really, growing up, I didn't take singing lessons. I just took, I took a singing class, which was like a chorus. Just like in high school, I was in the choir. Um, you know, in middle school, I was in the choir, you know. But you know how that is. They're like, you need an elective. It's either right. band, choir, or orchestra. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to kick right. with the choir, you know. And it was kind of similar when I went to Howard. I was in this group called A Whole Lot of Jazz Singers, which was a course, and we would perform, you know. Nice. So, so yeah, I learned a lot. Of, I learned a lot uh, in those courses. So I, I guess per se you could say it was singing lessons, but it wasn't like a one-on-one thing. So do you think it was just natural talent? Because I know, like, I'm pretty sure I could go and take singing lessons and I would become a better singer. Yeah. But I don't think I could ever be. I feel like, oh, no, are you there? I lost you again. Okay, you back? I'm here. Okay. I feel like as a, I feel like, yes, you got to have raw talent to be able to sing. Like, I don't think anyone can just wake up and be like, I want to be a singer today. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to go take some singing lessons. You got to be able to carry a tune. You got to have some attitude behind it. Um, Yeah, I do believe it's a raw talent, but I think that raw talent has to be developed, though. Okay. You know. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, like there's a lot of people with raw talent, you know, but it's not developed. So, again, this is a game, you know. There there are a lot of people, like let's take a basketball player who has raw talent, you know. Um, we see it all the time. They'll, they'll be in high school with raw talent. They'll go to college and they have to fit inside of the game, inside of the program, and they might not be able to adjust. Or they'll go to college and they'll be great. And then they go to the NBA and they got to fit inside of a program and they don't know how to adjust because it's a game. You have to fit inside the game. There's a lot of people who can sing, but they can't write a song, you right. know? They, right. And they don't, it never catches on, you know? We, we know a lot of people with raw talent, but it's just like, they never hit it big because they never had a song that people could relate to. Right. You know? So, yeah, I do believe in raw talent. It just has to be developed. Okay. I have a question for you that has to do with um, kind of something that's been going on in popular culture. Okay. What do you think about separating an artist's art from what they do personally? Well, I think it depends on the matter. You know what I mean? Um, You got to understand that I believe everything goes with the time. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, I brought up Marvin Gaye earlier. Marvin Gaye is one of my favorite artists. But Marvin Gaye was a wild guy. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? He was a really wild guy. It wasn't public knowledge at the time of what he was doing. You know? It was in public knowledge that he was dating underage women. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
it wasn't public knowledge. So people will look at Marvin Gaye and be like, Marvin Gaye was this. He got shot and killed by his father. They they know that, you know, there was there was some demons he was battling. You know what I'm saying? That's what that's what they say. Mm-hmm. But in this day and age, we live in an information age where, you know, you see everything happening quick. You see things being uncovered quickly. And I feel that like a lot of people feel like we can't support someone who is doing something that's messed up. And I feel them on that, you know. Um, you you see this thing going down with R. Kelly. It's like there's a lot of people that's like, hey, we like R. Kelly. We can separate the art from the music. I think you got to ask yourself, like, are you really pulling out R. Kelly albums like that? You know, even if you're a huge fan, there was an era of R. Kelly. Like, what I'm waiting to see is, like, something happening like the heyday of someone you know what i'm saying like for example you know what something did happen the chris brown and rihanna thing where people mm-hmm. was like we can't mess with chris brown um you know they didn't want to separate the art from the person i think they actually go hand in hand but i also think that we got to be careful with cancel cu- culture too you know what i mean by that yeah where it's yeah. like we so quick to cancel someone like they wanted to cancel Chris Brown. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And for himself, he's kind of been like, I got to keep going because he's right. He's a human being. He has to keep going. Right. He still wants to make music. He's like, hey, I made a mistake. I was young. I was channeling my anger the wrong way and I should have never put my hands on that woman. And he's absolutely right. He shouldn't have. But I guess my question is, when do you lift, lift the cancel, the cancellation of a person? You know what I'm saying? Exactly. I will say this though, to to a to a R. Kelly and to a Bill Cosby, to two people that have no remorse, I believe they should be canceled. Definitely. To two people in denial, that's like, ah, well, you know, the surviving R. Kelly thing came out, and he was like, I'm going to make a joint called Surviving Lies. Like, listen, <sighs> we know that this is taking place, and yeah. you're denying it. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Bill Cosby in denial this week. I believe he said he was having fun in jail. There's no, there's no remorse. And then again, I go back to saying, I mean, I'm not, the Cosby show was a great thing, but I'm Mm. not, I'm not searching for Cosby episodes. Like I don't, I don't need it. You know what I'm saying? I'm not digging in the crates to pull out my R Kelly albums to listen to them. Yes. When I was growing up, I listened to R Kelly, but like, I'm not tripping. You know what I'm saying? But I'm also not at the extreme that if I'm in the car with my parents and step in the name of love, come on, and they want to hear it, that I'm like, you need to turn that off. Right. You feel what I'm saying? So I I think that there has to be like a balance of like, really, who's the artist that we're talking about? What's the artist's position? Are they remorseful? You know what I'm saying? Are they like, you know what? I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know? Or even I made some bad decisions, not even a mistake. Like I, I purposely chose to do this, but I'm turning from my ways. You know, I guess the question is, do they remain canceled? That's one of the most articulate, thoughtful, real things that I've heard about, you know, the R. Kelly situation or the Bill Cosby situation. That that was great. Thank you. Hey, man, you're, you're welcome. That's just my thoughts. Like, you know, that, that put things in perspective for me as well. It, it it just all I'm saying is 
it can't just be like a a straight law. You know what I mean? Like like we putting the gavel down. Like this is how we feel. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it has to be situational. You know? Exactly. I think that's just my main thing. It has to be situational. They calling. They're calling. Okay, this is the best thing. This is the last thing I'll say on this. This week with Monique and Steve Harvey, they're calling Steve Harvey uh, a coward because he doesn't agree with the way that Monique went about it, uh, dealing with the Netflix thing and Mm -hmm. dealing with uh, Oprah and Lee Daniels and Tyler Perry, you know. And, And my thing is, I get where Monique was coming from with integrity. There has to be some type of integrity. And she said that off camera, I don't know if everybody knows the story, so I'll give a quick, quick uh, synopsis of it. Mm-hmm. She did Precious, and she killed Precious. You know, she was Precious's mother in the movie. I mean, she was nominated for this. And right. Lee Daniels gave her, I believe, don't quote me on it, but I believe he gave her 50000 to do the movie and said, hey, I'm going to give you some more money on the back end when it pops off. And it popped off. And Oprah and Tyler Perry told her, you know, I guess they were behind the movie. And Lee Daniels, they all said, do the press run. And she said, I can't do the press run unless you're going to give me some more money. And they're like, mm-hmm. look, we ain't got no more money right now, but we're going to, we need you to do this press run. And she was just like, y'all not right. You said you was going to give me some more money. If it popped off, it popped off. Give me my money. Now, mm-hmm. to me, this is a prime example of the game. You get what I'm saying? Yep. Where it's like, this is the game you win. And she said, everybody said that she was right. But that she, you know, behind closed doors, all of them said, Oprah was like, you're right. Lee Daniels was like, you're right. Tyler Perry was like, you're right. You're right, but we need you to do this. And her response was like, if I'm right, why y'all making me do this? And she is saying that there has to be some type of integrity. Steve Harvey's response was like, you're a black woman dealing with the gatekeepers. You black. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. But when you get out on the front line and you pretty much say, you know, Tyler Perry, Oprah Winfrey, and Lee Daniels could suck my private parts, Mm. he was like, you went about it the wrong way. And her Mm. thing was like, I enjoyed that part of it. And they're calling him a coward, saying like, well, you're not standing up for integrity. Because he said, I got, what he said was, I got people that are dependent on me. So I can't Mm. say whatever I want to say on these networks or on these shows or about whoever I want to say it about, you know, because I got people depending on me and they say, Hey, this dude's a coward because he's, he's not standing up for her integrity. And he's showing that he doesn't have any integrity because he has a family to take care of. Mm-hmm. I think the thing was, he just disagreed with the way she went about it. Exactly. And he's saying that there are consequences to anything that we choose to do. Even mm-hmm. if, you're willing to fall on your sword. I believe that Colin Kaepernick is a prime example of someone who fell on the sword. You know? Mm-hmm. He he took a stance. The NFL told him to stop. He was like, nah, I gotta keep doing this. And then they blackballed him. Just like just like they blackballed Monique. And it doesn't make her wrong for what she did. But you gotta understand when you're crying wolf after you did it, you're not looking at the consequences of it. Exactly. And Steve Harvey, all he was saying to her is, hey, you're right. You're still right. You just went about it the wrong way because in this game, this is how it goes. If you want to change the rules of the game, you got to make your own game up. That's so real. You know? But 
I, I notice in our culture, and what I mean our, I don't mean black culture. I mean the culture of the world that we live in at this point. Everybody's so sensitive. And they have a right to be, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we're living in times where we want to see change. I believe that, you know, women need their equal pay. You know what I'm saying? All of this, the Me Too movement is a very real thing where we have to really pay attention to our actions as men. Even like if you're not being um, someone who is doing these acts to women, be an ally and just listening, you know, like just listen actively too. You know, an active listener listens to comprehend. He doesn't listen to respond. Don't be so offensive as males to be like, that didn't happen. You don't know what it's like to walk down the street and someone's just heckling you all day. Hey, you in the purple pants. Hey, braids. Hey, dark skin. Hey, like we don't we don't deal with that. You know what I'm saying? That's so real. And so I think you could be an ally in listening. But mm-hmm. I think on the other side, we have to really be okay with understanding each other's opinions. I think that Steve Harvey was just saying, hey, you my little sister, this the game that you in. I, and he, he said, I should have called you sooner. I was busy, but I should have called you sooner, which mm-hmm. I, I, I saw his accountability, you know, but I also told him, I also saw him saying like, this is a game. I'm not trying to down your integrity, but sometimes when you go stick your chest out and be like, this is about integrity, understand that you're going to fall on that sword too. Right, because this game ain't about integrity, mm-hmm. not the money game. You know what I mean? Not the entertainment game. And right. so, it's it's just interesting. The times that we live in are interesting. You know, definitely, definitely. That's some deep stuff that you're covering, man. I, and I love that. I love that you're introspective enough to be able to look at it from a you know from a black man's perspective, but also be able to say something like be an ally to women. You and got to be. Yeah, yeah, I don't think enough black men look at it like that. And they look, hey, I'm not doing it. Okay, I'm absolved. Let's move on to the next thing. Nah, Being that's not cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I feel that, Um, I mean, we all have to grow, you know? And times change. Like, taking it back to, like, the Jim Crow thing. Like, we, we really almost lost. I think people don't understand that. Like, yeah. imagine... Imagine if they would have shot Martin before the Civil Rights Act was, was uh, you know, brought into fruition in 64, summer of 64. You feel what I'm saying? They shot, they got Mega Evers, they got Kennedy, they got Malcolm X, they got Martin in 68. I think they got Robert Kennedy before Martin, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. Got to do the research on that. But all I'm saying is, they were taking us out. And they took Martin out because Martin was coming for a check. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was the only person that they couldn't stop. You know what yep. I'm saying? Like, that, to me, that's the, the most crazy thing about the civil rights movement. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you look at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they're literally the only thing that the FBI, even though they infiltrated everybody, they're the only ones they couldn't make crumble. You know, they had tapes on Martin. They were sending the tapes to Coretta Scott. They was trying everything. Every other organization, they were able to plant people inside. You know what I mean? Right. From the Panthers um, to the Nation of Islam. This was, they, 
it imploded. It was from the inside. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But the the movement didn't stop till they shot Martin. They they had to kill him. They're like, man, we can't stop this guy. You know? Yeah. But if that happens before the Civil Rights Act is passed, who knows what'll happen? And I say all that to say that things change. And what's changing right now is that women need their rights. Equality. Uh, they talk about sexual harassment. They talk about the way that they've been treated. And we need to be allies. Like, period. You know what I'm saying? Especially for our black women, man. Like, I'm, I grew up in a household with a strong black woman, my mother. And I had a father. I, I tip my hat to my father because he was an ally of my mom. He would listen to her. He'd ask mm-hmm. her what she wanted to do. What, what she wanted mattered. You know what I'm saying? Her opinion counted, you know? Yeah. And watching him be with a strong black woman and watching her be a strong black woman who could be submissive to him, they were submissive to each other, it showed me that it's, it's possible. You yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. I just leave that there. Yeah, that, that's so important. That's so important. What do you think about um, the state of the culture? And I'm talking a little bit about hip hop now. Okay. And it was a quote from Diddy. He said, the culture is for everyone to enjoy, mm-hmm. but for us to own. Okay. How do you feel about the ownership and where things are going within music in general? But, you know, there's a lot of hip hop because that's, you know, kind of the forefront. And how can we take more ownership within music and whatever endeavors we're doing? I mean, I feel what what Diddy is saying. You know, I I just think that he's in a position where he can now own certain things, you know? Like, I think for a lot of the times, we didn't realize that these labels like uh, Bad Boy and Rockefeller, even though they were their own entities, they were subsidiaries, you know what I mean? Which means that they they were under Def Jam or you know, Capitol Records or whomever, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so ownership is the key. Yeah. But the problem is, although we create the culture, again, they feed it to the world in mass production. And because they own the machines to get it out in mass production, in a sense, they feel like they own the culture. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so that's why I always tip my hat to Motown because Motown happened within the civil rights movement and Motown, they wanted to make sure that we showed the world that black people are sophisticated, clean dressed and talented, you know? Mm -hmm. So when you look at those Motown artists in the sixties and the seventies, you know, seventies is like fist in the air and Afros sixties is like clean cut. You know what I mean? Right, And so when you see Motown presenting black people in a way for the first time, you know, white people, they, they weren't seeing black people like this. But to see, you know, Diana Ross and the Supremes on television with makeup and like they look amazing and white people are looking like this is crazy. This, <laughs> right. this is what black people look like. This is because, you know they were showing black people as, you know, being poor, 
having rags on. You know what I'm saying? Black face. Like, this is the stuff they were showing on TV. But then you see the Ed Sullivan show, and you see Marvin Gaye walk out with a suit on. You see James Brown walk out with a suit on. You see Sammy Davis Jr. with a suit on. It's a different game. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And so, nowadays, I get what Diddy is saying, but you also got to pay attention to, in the 90s, what were they saying black culture was? You know, we started out at the top of the 90s where rap was progressive and political. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then they was like, we got to change that. These messages are too good. We got to change the messaging up. Then in comes calling women bitches and hoes. You know what I'm saying? Um, In comes the certain type of way that you dress. In comes everybody wants to look like a hoodlum. You know what I'm saying? And it's quick, we're quick to say, like, no, nah, that's not the culture. You know what I'm saying? Or don't don't downplay the culture. And it's not even downplaying the culture. I do think there's a time when you're a child and you dress a certain way. You know what yep. I'm saying? But I also think that we gotta have style and sophistication to us. Like we we are a plethora of different things. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And it's not to get on on that type of thing. Cause I think that we're that too. We got style, we got a hood style to us, you know. Right. But my problem is when that's the only thing that's being pushed. Right. Exactly. And that's why I think when Diddy's like, we need to own the culture. I'm glad to hear him say that because I feel like he is now in a position, him and Jay-Z, they're in a position where you're watching them help out the younger, the younger generation. You know, Jay-Z getting his lawyers on a 21 Savage case. That was big. You know, Jay-Z getting, helping, talking about Meek Mill. This mm-hmm. is like, this is black excellence. This is like, hey, we're not about to let the younger generation do this, you know, or, or this happen to the younger generation, you know. And then Wayne came out and said when he was at a low place that Jay-Z paid his taxes. There you go. And he's doing all this stuff silently. And, yeah. and that's, what, that's what ownership is about. It's about being in a place where you can help other people. Right, right. And I think that's what they're saying, but I think it's I think ownership and entrepreneurship is a little dangerous because everybody isn't built for it. Just like we were talking about talent with singing. You yeah. gotta have a certain amount of talent and a lot of people don't have the stomach to be able to handle entrepreneurship. Yeah. Then with everything being out here with the internet. A lot of people can't take that scarlet letter that comes when you say, hey, I have my own business. And then five or six years later, you're, you know, working at Target. And a lot of people can't take that. So we need to have honest conversations about entrepreneurship. Yeah. That's what you want to do. That's okay. But entrepreneurship is not for everybody. It is not for everyone. You're absolutely right. You know, and it's but it's certain people that can do that. And I think the people that can and have a penchant for being entrepreneurs, they need to take that jump. So, you know, it's it's a it's a much deeper conversation than, you know, everybody needs to start their own business because ninety nine point nine percent of businesses do not work. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to fall on your face, you know, many times, you know, and that's and that goes back to my point about singing like adversity passion you know mm-hmm. who are you in the face of disappointment because that's really going to let you know like if you can make it you know exactly it's going to be disappointments it's going to be failures and you got to like continue to figure things out right you know 
Well, you know, I got a, one or two more questions for you, but uh, you know, the reason for this podcast is because, you know, and it's called the HBCU audio experience is because HBCUs and me or you wouldn't be on this probably if it wasn't for our, your older brother and my older sister and us going to HBCUs. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your HBCU experience at the Mecca. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, (laughs) I feel that coming from Cleveland, Ohio, graduating from Shaker Heights High School, which is, I felt at the time that I was there, it was like 50% black, 50% white, which really gave me kind of a look at what my world would look like, you know? Mm-hmm. But the problem is I didn't realize that there was a world like Howard, you know? So when I got to Howard University and there's all these different beautiful shades of black and, you know, just Afrocentric culture, like I didn't even realize I was beautiful until I got to Howard, you know? Mm-hmm. And I had never been in a place where there were so many black people with dreams and aspirations and, you had teachers who who loved you and wanted to see you succeed and wouldn't wouldn't let you settle for less, you know. Right. Um, you know, I wasn't really ever in a position where my grades were slipping, but I know that there were people who were, and we would just pick them up, like, "Hey, come study with us, come do this, come do that with us," you know. Like it was like these are like your brothers and your sisters, you know. Um, many talks about dreams and you know, what we wanted to do when we got out of school. The greatest networking experience I've ever had, you know, to this day, I could go damn near anywhere in the world and find someone from Howard. You know, I put a, I, I got a show coming in here and then I'll see people tagging people like, check them out, this HU, check them out, yeah. you know. It, yeah. it's, it's crazy. It was the teachers I had um, in, in my music department, uh, Professor Charlie Young, uh, Professor Miller, who who was that, um, she was a, in charge of the singing department, you know what I'm saying? A whole lot of jazz singers. She runs Afro Blue. Um, these these people, they, they've had such an impact on my life and, you know, moving forward in my career to this day that I just never forget them, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, being able to do my first show in, at Howard at the Punch-Out, where students could come out and see me perform, open mics at Howard, you know, where students could come out and see me perform. This set the stage for, you know, my development as an artist and development as, you know, Aaron Abernathy, the person. So Mm -hmm. I feel like the experience there is, is, there's nothing like it. it. It made me who I am. Would you suggest an HBCU to anyone or just, or a certain type of person? Um, I I think that um, I think that especially if you're black or a minority, but black especially, I I would recommend going to an HBCU mm-hmm. for networking purposes. Yeah. Period. Is, you know what I'm saying? The ROI is in the people. Man, say that like that, and that's what I didn't understand until I left. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, wow, this is this is crazy. Yeah. You know, it's like a fraternity, you know? And then the crazy part about going to an HBCU was after you get out of HBCU, I know between 
all the different HBCUs, we always say ours is the best and this, this, and that. But when you go to an HBCU, it's just love to hear that someone else went to an HBCU. It is. We're going to look out like, okay, you went yeah. there. Uh, cool. What's up? What you need? Exactly. You know? So I, I think that being a black person, one of the best things you could do is go to an HBCU. Period. Definitely. All right. We appreciate having you, Aaron. Hey, thank you for having me. Tell people how they can reach you, where they can get the new album, where they can follow you, where your next tour dates are going to be. Just tell everybody where to find you. You can find me on Instagram at Aaron underscore Abernathy. That's A-A-R-O-N underscore underscore A, B as in boy, E-R, N as in Nancy, A, T as in Tom, H-Y. Uh, you can get the album on my website. That's www.aaronabernathy.com. Uh, I'm not really, I'm on Twitter uh, at AB Music. Uh, on Facebook, I'm facebook.com backslash A-B-S-T-H-E-N-A-M-E. That's abs, the name. But um, the best way to reach me is on Instagram. You could get the album. It's available on all digital retailers as well. Spotify, Tidal. Uh, Apple Music, iTunes, Bandcamp, uh, and you can get the album, vinyl, CDs at my website. So, best way to reach me is Instagram, though. I do respond to people. Nice. Now, I want you to ask our listeners the question of the day, and the question can be anything about HBCUs. It can be about what's their favorite song right now, their favorite color. You can ask anything, and they can give you feedback. Oh, I lost you. Yo, you you back? I'm back. Okay, there we go. Yeah, I can. Okay. So, so what is your question of the day for the HBCU grad family? Uh, it can be about anything. It can be something deep. It can be something small. What's your favorite food? It can be what are you into right now? Absolutely anything. So what is your question of the day? My question of the day is, who are you mentoring? Who are you pouring back into? Um, if you have a passion, you have a purpose, who are you being transparent with and vulnerable about the journey that you've been on to give people some type of realistic outlook on the path that you've been on? That's great. It's so important for us to, you know, reach back and, and, and feed the next generation and, and give because when the youth come to elders for information, they receive wisdom. So I yeah. really appreciate you asking that question. We appreciate having you, Aaron. If there's anything we can ever do for you, feel free to reach out to us. Man, and appreciate you. No problem. You have a great one. All right, you too, man. Take care. Bye-bye. We want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, it really, really means a lot to us that you're taking time out of your day to uh, listen to our content. Hopefully we added some value to it. If you could do us a huge favor, please rate us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We would love a five star, but honesty is more important. If it's just a two, it's just a two. So if you would rate us, we would really appreciate that. 
catch you on the next episode. Have a good one.